Good morning. This is lesson 34, and I have, as I predictably do, changed my title to Give Me That Old Time Religion. I've had a few, uh, but that I think is where I'm going to stay. And uh, this is on uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verses uh, 7 through 9. And uh, if you uh, notice the change in your study guide, from your study guide, you'll notice I added verse 9. And uh, the reason is that verse 9 is very closely tied to our text, but it's also closely tied to the verses that follow. So I'll kind of cheat a little bit and uh, refer to it in this week's message and in next, Lord willing. It was a number of years ago that my parents went to uh, Taiwan. My sister and her husband had been missionaries there for uh, a number of years. And uh, my parents spent a year there as teachers in a Christian school. My dad is the school teacher and my mom is the teacher's assistant. But on one of their trips to uh, Taiwan, they took my grandmother, not my 106-year-old grandmother, but my other grandmother, with them. And the thing that was interesting about that trip is that my grandmother was, was just in the heyday of her glory. And the reason is because that culture honors age. And, and, and so she was treated like a queen. She had never seen the kind of respect and, and, and honor that she was giving there, given there. And I think she would have spent the rest of her days there if she could have done it. I hate to say it, but but in our culture, it's almost getting to the point where they look at you and tap their toe and like, well, hurry up, <laughs> move on, get it over with, you know. And frankly, sometimes you want to be saying, get your hand off that plug, <laughs> like they're pulling the plug on us. They have that little regard for age. Uh, let me just uh, look at our text and review verses 1 through 6. Uh, because the, the writer has been giving us some very practical advice. He urges his readers to continue the practice of brotherly love. And then he spells that out in terms of hospitality to strangers, visiting those, remembering those in prison, and, and identifying with those who are persecuted for their faith, honoring marriage, and maintaining sexual purity in the process, and then living a life that is free from the love of money. Now, how does that relate to our text? Well, it seems to me, as I pointed out last week, that all of these things that are, that are supposed to be a part of the reader's lives, all of these things that are commanded to the readers in general are things that you can find as the qualifications for an elder in 1 Timothy chapter uh, 3 and in Titus chapter 1. So these are qualities that ought to mark uh, the leaders of the church. They are also qualities that people in the church should be seeking in their own lives. And so it seems to me um, it's a logical thing for the author to go from those qualities to those people in whose lives you should see those qualities. And so he moves from the commands in verses 1 through 6 to examples in leadership in verses uh, in verse 7 and pressing on to verse 9. So here's the way I see verses 7 through 9. Verse 7 is to is an exhortation to imitate the faith 
of your leaders. Look at their lives, remember what they have done, and imitate their faith. Verse 8 is a focus on the constancy and the changelessness of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 9 is an exhortation not to be carried away with strange and novel teachings uh, of all kinds. And, uh, and in particular, he is talking about teachings that pertain to foods, but who dis- which distract from uh, grace. So let's look at verse 7, first of all, in the exhortation to imitate your faithful, and you'll notice in parentheses, but departed leaders. Uh, I think I can demonstrate that as we go along. He says, remember your leaders who spoke God's message to you, reflect on the outcome of their lives, and imitate their faith. So he has moved from those qualities that he's called for in verses 1 through 6 to those in whose lives we should see, or perhaps more accurately, we should remember those qualities, that is, those who have led and now have passed on. Uh, now... Look at the uh, some of the characteristics that I think we can see here or observations we can see. Worthy leaders speak God's word. Do you notice that? Worthy leaders, those that we are to imitate, those that we are to remember are those who spoke to us the word of God. Now, I wondered about this expression and, and I did a little pursuit on it to see whether there is a difference between those who spoke the word of God in the sense that it is already given to us and they are speaking to us, as it were, from the word of God. I've got two translations here, pardon me. And, and uh, whether it's that or whether it is those who wrote it. And actually, every time in Hebrews that I have found that it refers to the origin of scripture, it actually says they spoke it. And so it may include, it could include those who are the apostolic authorities from whom the scriptures have come, as well as those who are church leaders who proclaim it. I think the expression does not exclude one or the other. And I would simply remind you of the importance of the word of God to leadership. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Anybody that's been to Dallas Seminary, that's the big slogan. Preach the word, and it's a, it's a great one. Uh, Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verses 25 through 32, in essence, he says to the, the Ephesian elders who he may never see again, he says, I have taught you everything you need to know. I have spent my life ministering God's word to you. And then as he leaves them, he says, I commit you to the word of God to use that word of God to shepherd and guide the flock. So my point is this. Nobody should be a leader who isn't committed to proclaiming God's word. The authority of leaders ultimately comes from Scripture, and and, uh, the writer is certainly indicating that. These people are people who have spoken the word. But they're also leaders who have finished well. That is, when he says we are to look at the outcome of their lives, it seems pretty clear to me in the context that their lives are over. You can't evaluate somebody's life in total until they're gone. And so he is talking about looking at their life 
from the end. Now, that's not surprising to me in the light of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse and chapter 12. Chapter 11 talks about people who live the life of faith. Chapter 12 is the exhortation for us to run with endurance the race that has been set before us. In other words, we are challenged to finish the race well. And so the leaders that we are encouraged to look at and to remember are those who have finished well. My personal opinion is that they have died. I think that the, the way in which the, the wording comes to us and so on, the inference is to me that they've died, and I'll, I'll try to point that out to you in a second. Oh, I should say, too, they have finished well, and I put in parentheses, in adversity. Now, I understand that the text does not say that exactly in boldface, but I think the inference is there. If these people are leaders who led them in the past and are now gone, and if we go back to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, where the author is describing a previous period of persecution, and he says, these are the things that characterize you. You remember that not only are these things that are described in verses 1 through 6, uh, characteristics of elders, they are also the things that were described of the church in, in chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, and said, you identified with the prisoners. You didn't mind the, the loss of your property. So obviously they, they lived their lives free from the love of money because they were losing their worldly goods. So the things that, that are, are to be practiced are things that have been practiced in the past my sense is that a number of these leaders, uh, if not all of them, were men who had been through the difficult, tough days of persecution, and they had weathered that well. I have to tell you that when you look at somebody's life and you see it well-lived and well-finished, when they have been in the, in the, in the jaws, as it were, of the lion, uh, that speaks highly. And when you look at Hebrews and you see the, the persecution past and the persecution future, it, it, it seems to me that these are people who have, uh, have suffered and therefore they finished well, not on an easy course, but on a track that is very difficult and has had its, its hard times. Some of whom, in my mind, may be martyrs, may have been martyrs. Some of whom may have died for their faith. That's finishing well, it seems to me. Uh, notice this too. The word leaders is plural, not singular. In, in our day and time, somehow we've really gotten into this singular thing where you sort of pick a, a, a star, a pick a hero, and that's the person who then dominates the scene. Uh, this is really more consistent with New Testament ecclesiology, isn't it? Leadership is plural in the New Testament church. And the reality is you have a plurality of gifts, you have a plurality of circumstances, and so when you look at a plurality of, of men who have led and then you look at their lives in retrospect, you can see different dimensions of gifting, different dimensions of faith and perseverance, and so you have a broader picture. Uh, for me, if you pick just one hero... I always find myself saying, that's not me. But if you see a group of, of people who have been faithful uh, and endured, then you can find yourself people who make, I think, models uh, that you can imitate. 
The leader's work is in the past. That's why I was saying I think they've died. He says, remember. Now, this word leaders is going to occur twice more in, two times more in, in chapter 13. In verse 17, we are told to submit to our leaders. Same word. And in verse 24, they are told to greet their leaders. When you look at verse 17, it's very clear that if you're to submit to your leaders, folks, they aren't dead. <laughs> right? These are living leaders. These are people who have leadership over you. When you're told to remember your leaders, then it seems to me that you, you would say you're, you're not told to submit to them per se. You're told to imitate them because they have come, they have lived their life, they have set the example of a life of faith, and therefore you can follow that example. They spoke the word to you. Not they speak. They spoke the word to you. And then he talks about the outcome. And that word outcome seems to indicate the end. In fact, some scholars like Dalich would say that it actually includes the manner in which they died. Now, I'm not sure I'm quite willing to go that far, but but at least I'm willing to say I think they died. And, and the way in which they live their life up to that point of death, I think, is the critical thing. So in my opinion, these are, these are men, leaders of the past, who have had a great impact on the lives of these believers. Now, here's the thing that's interesting. The participle that's used, those you would probably translate, I would probably normally translate that, those who lead you, not led, lead you. It's a present participle. And you're saying to yourself, why in the world would it be a present participle when these guys are dead? Um, <clears throat> by the way, the New American Standard Bible, it's kind of interesting. They, uh, they boldly differ uh, from the, the, the Greek text, and they say, those who led you. And they just flat out go with a, a past translation. Almost everybody else sort of um, slips by it by saying your leaders, and they don't they don't bother to give you a sense of the tense of the participle, whether it's past or present. They just talk about leaders, and so they sort of skirt the issue. But it seems to me that there is a, an answer to that, and it's here, chapter eleven, verse four, where the writer said. Abel still speaks to us. How does he still speak if he's dead? And and when you come to chapter 12 and you see this great host of witnesses, as I view those witnesses, there is some level of uh, not just observation, but they are they are in the race with us in the sense of those looking on with great interest. As I suggested, it's like a relay and they, they've handed the baton to us, but they're watching with great interest in how we run the race. I would suggest to you that in... In a, in a church where you believe that Christ remains the same and where change is not necessary with respect to the Word of God, with respect to right doctrine, with respect to how you go about church, then would you not say that the people who have led us in the past, have there is a sense in which they continue to lead, just like those who are dead from the past, like Abel, continue to speak? To me... It, it, it's not unreasonable to say leaders of the past still have an influence 
in the life of the church, or I should say, they should have. They should have. Now, what's happening, I think, in our culture is, our culture is dumping out this the past as though it is garbage, and they don't want any part of it, and now everything is new and improved, and so we want to get rid of that old stuff. If indeed these are people whose doctrine is straight, whose, whose Savior doesn't change, whose scriptures don't change, then, then you don't really need, that's why I said, give me that old time, you know, give me that old time religion. That's what it is. It's good enough. It's not only good enough for me, folks, it's good enough for him. Because it doesn't change. He doesn't change. So anyway, that's my, uh, that's my take on it. Imitate their faith. It doesn't say imitate every dimension of their lives. It doesn't say imitate their methods. If you go to the great books in the bookshelf, you'll find he did it this way and he did it this way and everybody's trying to do the same thing. Imitate their faith. That's the thing that ought to be the constant in our lives as, as I see it at least. So, Jesus Christ is the same forever. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, I'm going to give you this a little bit about out of order, uh, point B in your notes. The time and eternity factor. When you look in the Old Testament, it seemed to me that the fudge factor was place. Not time, but place. And I'm thinking about two particular accounts. In 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 28, the Syrians were coming down against Israel, and God gave a miraculous victory to Israel uh, over the Syrians. And the way in which the Syrians excused themselves is they said, Ooh, we didn't realize that they have the God of the mountains and we have the God of the plains. No wonder we had the wrong, in a sense, the wrong gods doing the fighting. So we got to keep this thing on the plains. And the prophet comes along and he says to the king of Israel, Because they said this, I'm going to give you the victory the second time. Remember, they set this thing up. They set the whole thing up and they imitated the same number of troops and everything because they wanted to prove now that they had the right God thing going that they were going to lick them. And God said, because that's how little you think of me. You think that somehow I'm restricted to, 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 to hills or to valleys and that's where my power is. You're going to lose. Now, that's pretty easy to believe of a of an unbeliever but think about abraham in genesis chapter 20 this is the second time in recorded history and i gather there were other times because of what abraham says to abimelech this is the second time that abraham has passed off his wife as his sister as his eligible to marry sister Remember the one who's going to be getting pregnant and having that baby very soon? And so when Abimelech realizes that Sarah is Abraham's wife, he says to, to Abraham, what did you do that for? And what has Abraham said? Because I didn't think, I'm paraphrasing, but the essence of it is, because it's a long ways away from the promised land and I didn't think there was any fear of God in this place. It was as though, well, I know God will keep his promises if I were in the right place, but, but we're, we're in a different place. And so 
his thinking is substantially not that different from the, the Syrians' thinking. Okay, so there are some people who would think God has somehow got geographical boundaries on his power. I think we know better than that. I would say in our time, it is not geography, it is time that gives God the boundaries. And it's that in the minds of Christians as well as unbelievers. People are willing to say, oh, we know that this happened back 2,000 years ago, but these are modern times. That was then. This is now. And, and, and especially if you add a little evolutionary thinking into that, I mean, what does evolution need? It needs a whole lot of time and a whole lot of change. And they equate change with time. And so there is a way in which Christians will come, and they'll come to the difficult texts of the Bible, that is, difficult meaning the text they don't want to obey, and they'll say, well, that was then. Well, Paul, when he writes in Corinthians, he's writing to them then, but he's not writing to us now. And you see that Christians are tap dancing all over the text, and they're using time as their excuse. That was a different time. And now is a different time, and I can therefore live my life differently because I can set those things aside. So it seems to me that when you come to this whole issue of the constancy of Christ, it is necessary because some people think that time changes things. Well, it does not change the gospel, and it does not change Christ. That's why the writer has been able to tell us we have an unshakable kingdom. It doesn't shake because time doesn't change. Okay, now take a look at the name Jesus Christ. Jesus is the earthly name of our Lord, and Christ is the, the Messiah name, and you have those blended together, as Don pointed out. If we wanted to add one more word, we'd say the Lord Jesus Christ. But why does the author use those terms of the earthly name of our Lord. Uh, one of the uh, Bible uh, scholars that I greatly admire and respect talked about this text and said, our Lord in his, in his deity never changes, but, but our Lord in his humanity did change. Now, there's a certain measure of truth in that. The Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 2 grew in wisdom and knowledge and stature and so on in favor with God and men. So we would say as our Lord Jesus grew up, there was change. And, and the, the way in which this scholar then took it is, but when we look at our Lord in terms of his deity, his deity never changes, only his humanity. <clears throat> I'm willing to grant a little a measure of that, but I don't think that's what our author's saying. I think what our author is saying is this. The critical point in time for the Christian is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's what we hit in in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 1, our Lord Jesus is described as the one who is is timeless and who has changed us. Look at uh, verses 10 through 12 of Hebrews chapter uh, 1. It says, you founded the earth in the beginning, Lord. 
And I think it's applying it to our Lord Jesus. You founded it, the, the earth in the beginning, Lord, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you continue. They will all grow old like a garment, and like a robe you will fold them up, and like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will never run out. Now, <clears throat> that is true of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the point that I see the author making. There is a way in which you have to say the incarnation of our Lord Jesus was a huge change in one sense. Would you not agree? I mean, here he left the glory and the prerogatives that he had of heaven, and he came down and took on human flesh. And everything that our Lord did that is really of significance to us in the sense of salvation is all wrapped up in his incarnate being. In other words, he came and identified with men so that he could die for men's sins. So the atonement is made by the God-man. When he now goes back up into heaven, because he came in human flesh, he has entered into our sufferings, he is a sympathetic high priest, and it is in his human divine being, that is, as, as Jesus Christ, it is in that capacity that he carries out his high priestly ministry. I believe what the author is saying is that our Lord Jesus Christ didn't just come and take on humanity for a limited period of time and then passes on from that. I think what he's saying is our Lord is God and man joined together for all the rest of eternity. Now, if you look at this, maybe I'm stretching this, but here's the way I look at it. He does not say from ages past to today to ages of eternity. There's a, the, the, the one for, for the uh, forever is basically the ages of eternity. We know that our Lord Jesus existed in ages past. No question about that, that he, the second person of the Trinity existed in eternity past. He's always been there. He was there at creation. But at the incarnation... Humanity is added to his deity, his undiminished deity, his perfect humanity is blended together to that forever. So that now from the point of the incarnation on, that never changes. And I take that that, that is crucial to the Christian who is living their life and, and, and that they need to understand he will always be the sympathetic high priest. He will always be uh, the God-man, for instance, when he is going to fulfill his promises and come and establish his kingdom, and he is going to sit on the throne of his father David, he does so as God-man, does he not? As the son of David. And so that element will never change. And that element of what he has done in his incarnation is what is the guts of our faith at least as I see it. So the unchangeableness of our Lord is, is a critical uh, element. His person and his ministry will not change. And consequently, which leads us to our next point, the message doesn't change. If he doesn't change, then nothing changes about our salvation. There is no upgrade necessary for us. In the computer world, I started in 1981 with DOS 1.0. 
and it was 1.1. We went up to DOS 3.36. Anyway, Windows, and, and now I'm running Windows 7. I don't know about the rest of you, but I've been through all of that. I started with Magic Pencil for word processing software. I don't even know where it came from anymore. But I've gone through all kinds of versions of software. And, and even with the motherboard, you'll, you'll up, you won't, I do. You upgrade the BIOS because there's something new that's come along. Some new kind of equipment. And your computer board, motherboard needs to look and to be able to see that. And so there's all these upgrades and whatever. We're used to change. And what I'm saying is, there is not Bible 1.2a. Bible 2.0, 3.3. It's not there. Why? Because nothing has changed. In fact, I, I'm going to go a little step further because this is really a watchword of our culture and of our society which just talks about change all the time. It isn't God alone who hasn't changed. It is, that is true. Our Lord Jesus Christ will never change. But even the circumstances that we describe as these monumental changes, go back and read Ecclesiastes. The writer to the Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing new under the sun. You think that the mass destruction of human life somehow is some new radical thing for humanity to deal with? I mean, look at Genghis Khan and whatever it was. They've always faced that. In terms of man's fallen nature, has anything changed about that? So I guess what I'm trying to say is, in terms of the fundamentals of living the Christian life, (laughs) it's really pretty much the same story. That's why we can read the Old Testament, we can identify with them, read the New Testament, identify with them. Because there's not a whole lot that really fundamentally changes, although we might like to think that. So, the writer says then in verse... Uh, 9, do not be carried away by all sorts of strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not ritual meals. I'm going to cheat and go down to point D in the notes. Why all this emphasis on food? (laughs) Well, here we are, seven minutes before noon, and your stomachs are growling, and you're saying, what's wrong with you, partner? Uh, Food's important to us. Is it not? I've told the story before, but when one of my daughters would get invited to spend the night with a friend, she had one qualifying question. What are we going to (laughs) eat? And that was the determining factor. Food is important to people. And it's important in the Bible in several ways. One, food was the indicator of change. If you want to call it dispensational change, that's, that's fine with me. But Notice, in the, in the garden, men were vegetarians. Is that not right? Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, men could eat meat. In the giving of the law, men could eat certain meat and not other meat. Then when you come to the New Testament and Jesus declares all foods clean, Mark chapter 7, and then we come to Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11 where Peter gets the message, kill and eat. Peter says, not me, not me, I'm not having that stuff. No pork chops here. God says to him, what I've called clean, don't you call unclean. It wasn't something fundamentally unclean. I know I shouldn't have even said the word pork, but I did. Why did it come to my mind? But the reality is there was nothing fundamentally unclean about those foods so that they couldn't be eaten because of their nature. It was because God said they were unclean. 
And therefore, when God declared them clean, you can have bacon and tomato sandwich all day long. It's not going to hurt you and it's not wrong. But when you look through the New Testament, you see food was the pretext. Now, there's a way in which we could say in the Old Testament sense, it was the context out of which a Jew would remain separate from Gentiles. Food laws were given so that Jews would live their lives not corrupted by and heavily influenced by Gentiles. But that changed in the New Testament. But the reason why food restrictions were still placed is Jews didn't really want contact with Gentiles. And so the whole clean and unclean thing was the perfect excuse to just say no. And when you get to Galatians chapter 2 and these guys come down from from Jerusalem and, and whatever, and all of a sudden the Gentiles are off eating by themselves and the Jews are off eating by themselves, it's because they really didn't want to associate. And there's all kinds of issues related to that. But I'm saying it was a hotbed uh, within the New Testament. And it was the basis for all kinds of divisions. And that's why you find in Romans, 1 Corinthians, and, and other books, and I've, I've written some of those down for you, you see that foods, eating or not eating of certain foods, was a huge issue in terms of the unity of the church uh, in the New Testament times. So food's important. Strange teachings come, I say, in many sizes and shapes. That is, the way the text is saying it is, it isn't just one false teaching. Apparently, there is a whole batch of variations. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, error just keeps coming in all kinds of different new and improved uh, variations, but they're, they're all there uh, for the sampling for those who would have them. Christians can get carried away with false teaching. And I want to go one step further and say, Christians can even get carried away with things that are good. Now, I have to tell you, I listened to John Piper preach on this text, and he, he shocked me in this regard. He says, when he got ready to preach that morning, and he was taking his five or ten vitamin pills his wife had handed to him, he basically says, I'm going to take these, but I'm free of these things. And, and the bottom line was, he really got after this whole thing about foods. Now, I'm not sure where you are in your house, but 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 in our house, the subject of food, I'm glad Jeanette's working in the nursery because I can say all this. She's probably hearing me right now. But, but you, you know, what we eat uh, is important. I'm willing to grant you that. But, you know, there's vegetarian and non-vegetarian and there's, you know, the stuff that has chemicals on it and the stuff that doesn't have chemicals and there's fats and not fats and cholesterol. And, you know, you could spend your life reading books about the perfect diet. Could you not? And let me tell you, there's many of them, and none of them agree. <clears throat> but there's a way in which Christians get, get sort of carried away. When, I think I told this story, but years ago when I was in seminary, Dr. Johnson was in the, in the seminary book room, and, and one of the students uh, of the seminary that went to Believer's Chapel uh, asked Dr. Johnson about a particular f- popular fetish that was going on within the chapel. And he said, why, why do people at Believer's Chapel, why are they all intent and caught up in this? I'll tell you what it was, because it kept changing. And, and Dr. Johnson said, well, people at Believer's Chapel are, people at Believer's Chapel are, and I hollered over the bookshelves, 
kooks. And he says, that's it. That's it. <laughs> They're kooks. And, and, and the reality is, Christians, you know when you have this conspiracy theory kind of thing, Christians are sometimes vulnerable to certain kinds of things. And my point is this. You ought to eat right. I'm not going to tell you what that is, but you ought to eat right. And I ought to eat less. But if, if your life is consumed with, with the subject of foods to where you're spending more time in that diet book than you are in this book, something's wrong. I'll tell you something else. It seems to me that what, the reason the author says that we ought to not get caught up in these things because food don't profit, but grace does, right? The real issue is, are we getting caught up in something, true or not, caught up in something that somehow begins to focus our minds on what we do or what we don't do? In other words, is this just some additional legalistic set of rules where in doing this I'm better or in not doing this I'm better? And and where's the focus? The focus is my life will be better if I do or don't do this. All of a sudden, I've got my eyes off grace. I've got my eyes off Christ because the real issue in having a strengthened spiritual life is to have my eyes fixed on Jesus. And, you know, I don't remember reading about what Jesus ever ate. Do you? I mean, it's not that it wasn't important. Well, you know, he ate some bread and fish one time, I guess. But the, the reality is it's about him. It's about what he has done. It's about what he continues to do. And because he is changeless, that happens for all of eternity. And therefore, grace looks to Christ. It fixes on him. It doesn't fix on what I do or don't do. And by that, I'm strengthened. So I think what the author is saying is to us as Christians, don't get carried away with kooky stuff. Sure, it's important how you eat and what kind of diets you have and, and, and vitamin pills and all that stuff. But don't let that preoccupy your time and your energies to the point where you forget the Christian life and being strong is about Christ and about grace. Remember, uh, Paul said to Timothy, a bodily exercise profits a little. So does a good diet. It, profit, it may keep you going for a few more years. You may be mad that you didn't get to heaven sooner, but it it may keep you going. Leave those donuts alone. I'll take care of them over there in the the corner of the, the food deal. But godliness profits much. And godliness is abiding in him and in the work of our Lord Jesus. Okay, so I'm getting carried away with myself. Let me say a few things in conclusion. First of all, about leaders. This ought to be a challenge to us who are still kicking that we ought to be good and godly leaders because what we do impacts others. And it may impact others for a long time. If this text is true, then dying doesn't end the impact of our lives. Remember when Asaph is thinking he's grousing about how the, 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 the wicked guys are getting away with it and, 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 the, and the, the pious are somehow suffering. And in effect, he's saying, I thought about throwing in the towel. He says... 
But I realized if I had done that, I would have betrayed this generation of your children. Failures on the part of leaders impact many people. And godliness in the lives of leaders impacts many people now, and I would say from our text, into the future. We need to leave a legacy. We need to leave a legacy. Now, I'm willing to expand the the thought of leadership because the, the, the text really says those who have the rule. If that's true, then that may be uh, parents too, might it not? Parents have a way of leaving a legacy to their children that will linger long behind and long after their death. We ought to leave a legacy. Mother's Day is coming up. Father's Day is coming up. The way in which we live our lives as Christians has an impact on those who follow after us. I have to confess that I have a little bit of a problem with our text because I think that we've had it so easy that, 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 it, it's, that you, you, it's, it's hard to, to compare ourselves with those who have gone through chapter 10 and who are going to go through the difficult days. When you think of the days when the church was really under persecution in the scriptures, or when you think of places around the world where the church is under persecution, we look like pansies uh, in terms of how we live because we have not faced that kind of, uh, of duress. Here's my suggestion. I'm inclined to say that leaders includes more than just the people we can remember who have led us in this church and are dead. I, 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 want, I don't want to overlook them in any way, shape, or form. But I would suggest to you that we, are, we have leaders that we may never have met. It is, is John Calvin and Luther and Augustine, are, are those not leaders whose godly life under duress has impacted our lives and continues to do so as they point us to the truth? It, it seems to me that, that, that that is the case, that we have people, and, and I guess I'm making a pitch now for Ron, so be ready, Ron. I think, I think in order to do what this text says, we're going to have to do some reading. I think we're going to need to read outside of our bandwidth. We're going to have to start reading about godly men and women who have endured for the faith in a way that we have never seen. And that may mean people in other parts of the world today. It may mean people who have lived in difficult times. John Piper has that series, The Men of Whom the World is Not Worthy. If you have not listened to it or you have not read those books... You need to read about people who have paid a price for trusting Christ. And those people are people whose faith we ought to imitate. So all I'm saying is, let's, let's, let's blow out the topic in our minds of who these leaders are that we are to remember. And let's think about how they can impact us. Our changeless Savior, I'm going to end with this. I got to looking because of the word change. You know that change was the watchword of the political campaign of our president. In fact, it's still on the website. There's, there's just huge emphasis. It's time for change. And I have to say to you, things are changing. Things are changing. Supreme Court, it's going to change. Lower courts, they're going to change. 
Laws are going to change. Republicans are wimping out and on the issues of, of homosexuality and same-sex marriage, and that's going to change. There's going to be a whole lot of change, folks, that's coming up. And you and I are probably not going to like it. Well, let's put it this way. I'm not going to like it. I don't know where you'll be on that. But i got to tell you this. The thing that this text tells me is no matter how much things change, he doesn't. He doesn't. God is not up there wringing his hands wondering who the next Supreme Court nominee will be. He is not wringing his hands about any of this because as we saw in our, heard in our worship time, God will use the wickedness of men. He will use the rebellion of men. He will use the disasters of this life to bring about his purposes. He does not change. His character does not change. His promises do not change. Everything that he has resolved to do and promised us, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And the changes we're looking at may actually be the mechanism by which God brings them to happen. We live in a changing society. But the God who saved us, the God who is our great high priest, who sits at the right hand of the Father, he has not changed and he will not change. Father, we thank you for this text. Help us not to be influenced by all the changes in theology, uh, in men's thinking, in various ways. Help us to be rooted in the Scripture, in the fact that the one-time sacrifice of Jesus has made the payment for sins. If there is anyone here who has never trusted in Him, may they trust in His work at Calvary. And for those of us who are struggling through this life, help us to turn to our sympathetic and merciful high priest who sits at the right hand beside you and who does not change. His intercession for us will be uninterrupted. His coming kingdom is certain and the timing will not change. Thank you that we have an unshakable kingdom. Help us to be unshakable saints. In Jesus' name, amen.